sir. Dan, thank you for having me. Yes. For our audience who isn't aware, um, you will see us mute our mics, so like that. Um, if, if you see us flashing our mics really quickly, it means that we're applauding what each other are saying. And if you see us moving our mics very slowly, like Dan is right now, that means that we're looking to jump into the conversation. Um, Jay has been incredibly gracious to allow us to invite people up to the stage to ask questions. So please make sure to use that raise hand button. We really want to make sure this is as engaging for you as it is for us. Um, of course, we've always planned some great questions and we're going to um, start off with Dan getting us started. Well, it's an, it's an interesting um, story. It's a fun story. Uh, my firm does both economic development strategy work for states, regions, and communities, and we do site location work, meaning we help companies identify optimum locations for their investment. So we were doing a strategy project in the city of Covington, Kentucky, which is a suburb of Cincinnati. And uh, I got to meet, I did not know this person until we were engaged by the city of Covington, but I got to meet uh, a young fella who's become a very good friend named Ross Patton. Ross is a millennial. I am not a millennial. Uh, I am a baby boomer. Uh, and Ross, Ross's title at the city is director, I'm sorry, assistant director of economic development. A really, really smart guy. And so when we were finished with our project, he reached out to me a month or two when we were done. And he said, um, hey, I have this idea. I wanted to run by you. I am frustrated from time to time dealing with my volunteers and elected officials who have uh, some difficulty grasping and understanding the nuances related to achieving economic development success. So I have this idea where I would like to uh, co-author a book, and I can't think of anyone else to do that with, but you, would you have an interest? And I told Ross, I said, you know, I've been doing this work for a long time, four decades, and working with non-economic development professionals has been a passion of mine because typically, if they're especially if they're a policymaker, they drive economic development success. They either drive it to a community or out of a community if if they uh, demonstrate poor leadership. So we decided to uh, go through this venture. We came up with that concept in October of 2019. We did our homework. Neither of us, uh, you know, I've published many articles for 
trade publications and, you know, I've had to write uh, obviously a lot in my profession, but I've never written a book. So we had to do all of our homework, Dan. And we decided the best route for us to publish this was through Amazon Direct Press, which is basically a self-publishing mechanism. So we studied that. We needed to um, figure out the timing, the, the cost. Obviously, there's a lot of work associated to the graphic design. Um, I, I've had a long-standing relationship because of the work that we do with a copy editor uh, who is in Maryland, and she works uh, specifically on books. So we, we conceptualized this in October of 2019. We started writing it in earnest in January of 2020. Uh, it was finished in May of 2020 when the pandemic was in its early uh, stages and published in August of 2020. To date, we have sold over 3,200 copies, making it um, uh, an Amazon bestseller in the economic development genre. Thank you. Sure. So, Jay, in your book, you had mentioned that leadership is the common denominator for economic development success. So I'm curious as to what are some of the best practices in leadership that you've seen uh, working with economic development professionals from across the country? Well, Laura, first of all, let me let me thank you for inviting me. Um, and I, I'm thrilled to be part of this. And let me just say to our listeners out there, because you've run um economic development programs all over the country and some very dynamic communities. You're on my top 10 list of, of one of the best economic development professionals in the history of economic development. So that's um, very kind. Thank you so much, Jay. I learned from you uh, like I try to learn from everybody every day, but as it relates to leadership, I'm passionate about it because in our work all over North America, I've seen um, or communities and states that are winners and losers. And there's a common denominator for both, and it's leadership. And it's what I said earlier in, in my intro, and that is economic development, economic development success is predicated on the quality of public and private leadership. Good leadership is going to drive economic development to a community. Poor leadership is going to drive economic development out. Um, what's what's a best practice? Well, you know, I, I'm a big believer that typically leadership isn't isn't a born trait. You you can learn it because you're going to have type A and type B personalities who are effective leaders. But the one common trait is courage. Courage is a key consideration for economic development success. And what do I mean that, by that? Well, it's, it's the leaders who stand up and do the right thing and not be influenced. We all know about NIMBYs, the NIMBY people, not in my backyard. Those are a dime and dozen. Who I like to focus on are the cave people. Cave people are citizens against virtually everything cave and they can be very loud even though they can be a very small minority and because they are loud and they can be very vicious then they have uh, they can have a lot of influence in public policy matters and so leaders who can be courageous and do the right thing rather than be influenced by cave people uh, always seem to have success following them. <laughs> but I think, I was going to say, Dan, I think we've all encountered the cave people. Yeah.
Well, I mean, uh, it's the same thing, Dan. Leadership is the key. I mean, I still, I've been, I have been in this profession now for 41 years. And I was uh, smiling when you said that, you know, you have some of that PTSD too. Um, I do too, from my early days dealing with some absolute idiots that, uh, you know, influenced and drove policy. And so uh, I think, Anytime an economic development professional, there are several who are on this call today by looking at this list. Anytime they can work to educate their leadership, both elected and uh, volunteer, on Economic Development 101, the ABCs, the nuances of economic development, that's the whole reason why we wrote this book. Economic development is not for amateurs then uh, they're, they're going in that uh, right direction. And I'll tell you, I've, I've been very pleased. You know, I, we've done a number of book presentations, both virtually and in person. And I'll never forget, there was a uh, city council member in a, in a uh, uh, university community in Alabama who just got elected. He was a uh, retired veterinarian, so he was an educated person. And, and he said that, you know, he spent 90 minutes reading the book. It, we designed it that way. We knew that we weren't going to get uh, readership if it was some long uh, dissertation on economic development. We would lose people. So it was meant to be designed as a quick read. And that's what Amazon calls it, a quick read. And he said he learned more about economic development in that 90 minutes than he had in all of the years uh, as a business owner running a veterinary practice. And he also learned a lot more in that book than, than being uh, required to go to newly elected official training that the Alabama League of Municipalities requires. So uh, what I'm saying, Dan, is you still have to work to train your leadership, volunteer and elected officials, that should be reoccurring. Um, otherwise, the onus is on the economic development professional. Uh, they, you know, their leadership just wouldn't know any better. So you've got to make sure they're aware of what's real and what isn't. Well, you cannot sell from an empty wagon. You, you can have a wonderful geography, but if you don't have product, what's product? Well, product would be uh, industrial or commercial sites, office. If you're in the hospitality sector, it's going to be your tourism assets, uh, your product to attract conventioneers. You know, product can mean so many different things, but typically... It's a physical asset. So that's why we say, especially in the site location business, and it's something that I coined years ago, we, we trademarked it uh, because it is a unique phrase, no product, no project. You just can't get any simpler than that. And it resonates with policymakers because it's like a light bulb goes off with them, you know? I used to run the Asheville, North Carolina Chamber back in the 1990s. At the time, we had a staff of 43 people in little Asheville, North Carolina. But 30 of them were in the Convention and Visitor Bureau, which was part of our chamber, because the product at that time in Asheville was tourism. And our whole effort was to enhance and further develop uh, hospitality product to attract tourists. So, uh, and, and lastly, if you go back on to the industrial or commercial side, here's another um, saying, so to speak, that goes with no product, no project. And that's this, 
And I know every one of my economic development friends on this call would agree with me on this. And that is the entity that controls the dirt controls the project. So if let's say, you know, you're in Wichita Falls, Texas, as my friend David is, and he has a municipally owned industrial park. He controls the dirt. If it's a private developer, that private developer controls the dirt. You can negotiate easier if it's a quasi-public or publicly held product. And so that's why we say the entity con that controls the dirt controls the product. I think that sounds fantastic. Great. Um, so speaking of site selection, congratulations on being the chair of the Site Selector Guild this year. Are you excited about that, number one? Um, and two, we have a number of listeners from Canada. So I'm curious as to how the guild engages um, Canadian economic development organizations. Well, I, I, I appreciate the promotion, I've just finished my term as chair of the guild. So that's what right. Was, what was supposed to be 12 months turned into 15 months uh, because we, we uh, delayed our annual conference, which was just held at the beginning of June of this year in Orlando. We had 350 people there from all over the U.S. So, you know, a lot of people were just getting back to travel for the first time ever. I loved my chairmanship of the Guild. We did a major pivot on uh, the products and services that we offer. Uh, when the pandemic started, it made us a stronger organization. It got a lot more people engaged. Uh, Laura, we have 55 members of the Guild from all over the uh, world. From all over the world, we have uh, many members in Europe, Canada, and Asia. So uh, unfortunately, none of our international members could come to our conference that was June 10th through 12th because of, of international travel restrictions. But we still had 37 uh, domestic guild members there. We have had for years, the guild is 11 years old, and we have had for years a lot of Canadian representation. Uh, from all of the provinces, uh, all of the provinces. Um, in fact, at, at our conference, we had the Consulate General of Canada uh, from the Atlanta office who was uh, a sponsor and a participant because obviously she could come since she was based in Atlanta. So we, we've always had a strong uh, participation and representation from our Canadian economic development friends. We missed them this last time, but they will be back in full force when uh, the borders open up again from, from travel from Canada.
Uh, yes, that would be great. Um, but I am going to bring a couple of friends up. I'm going to put them on the spot. Um, so here comes Danielle Casey. <laughs> Yay. Well, uh And Dan, uh, just to brag on Danielle for just a second, she is a big winner today because she launched oh. her organization strategic plan yesterday. So big cheers for Danielle and getting that strategic plan launched. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. It was, uh, yes, I just, as you all know, it's, it was about six, seven months worth of work and, and in a community that has never done strategic planning through the regional economic development organization. So it's a, it's a big win and I'm really amazed and thrilled at all the support I've received. So that, that somewhat backs into the question I had. Well, first of all, Jay, awesome to talk to you and, and see your little face in the bubble there. And <laughs> I'm definitely excited to read, uh, read my book and my free copy. And I'm curious in terms of the content in there, um, what are your thoughts in terms of the material as a, as a, so I'll back up. One of the things I've proposed to my board that will be happening is for the first time, and I know this is very common in other regional EDOs, but it hasn't been in, in the one I'm in now, is holding a board retreat to then discuss how we're going to implement our strategy and, and get them all highly engaged in the work and helping. So what are your thoughts on the content and what areas when I read this will be the most useful if I were to put this in front of my board members as, as a, a food for thought reading material in preparation for a board retreat. Hey, Danielle, great to hear your voice. And, <laughs> uh, and I've, I've been following you uh, obviously on, on LinkedIn. So I've been seeing you virtually, but uh, <laughs> good. great to see you. So um, I, obviously I, you know, since I was on your side of the fence for 22 out of 41 years, I love, doing board retreats it it brings the people uh outside of their work environment um whether it's for a day or a day and a half and it gets them if you can get them to uh, uh not stay engaged on their phone um which is you know a a, a major um issue today where you, you just don't have the engagement like you had to because of so many technical distractions but um having the the board retreat is a wonderful thing and having sort of a quick summation of of the economy of uh the albuquerque region and then looking uh forward i think is the great is 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 the process to take everyone wants to talk about what's going to happen in the future what's what's looking forward so you might need to bring in even some sort of dynamic speaker to talk about that um uh, gosh, we had for the Guild Conference um, this June, we had Spencer Levy from CBRE, and he just knocked it out of the park with his presentation on what we could look forward to over the next three to five years. Within my book, it's, there's eight chapters, and all of them are, all eight are great, Danielle, so all they need is about <laughs> 90 minutes to read the book, and, and right. it'll be helpful for them, you know? Fair enough. I, I appreciate it. And, and I will, uh, as, as I get my copy and, and read through it, if I have questions, I will, I will definitely reach out to you. I think it'll be an exciting approach. And, and thanks for those pieces of advice. You're welcome. Jerry Sanford from Alexandria, Virginia. It's great to see you. Do you have a question for Jay? I, I do. And, and, uh, Laura, thank you for uh, convening this group and, and, and what you've done for the economic development industry. Jay, I really appreciate you being uh, on today and, and, you know, what you have done for the site selection industry. Um, I was fortunate enough to attend the Site Selectors Guild um, a few weeks ago and uh, at another conference, a similar conference, uh, last week. One of the common themes that was in both conferences was on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, in the site selection process. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, uh, Jerry, and thank you for coming to the conference. Um, I hope it was valuable for you. The, uh, 
uh, DEI, of course, is is a key consideration now. Now, let's be honest about it. It's, it is more important in certain sectors than others. So uh, anything related office, anything related uh, technology, the attraction of uh, talent of, of all facets, it is a key variable that companies and site location consultants are using. Consultants are using it if, if obviously because their client is telling them to use it. Now, you don't see it as, a, as much of a key consideration if it's something that might be more in the traditional manufacturing sector that might be locating in a, in a more rural environment. Um, it may not be a screen or a variable to measure or consider uh, based on the company. But obviously it is important in any facet of uh, the, the economic development equation. There's uh, two words I always use in the world of economic development, and that is, it depends. And in this case, like anything else, any variable, any criteria has different influences on different industry sectors, different geographies, and that's why I say it depends. But it's an important piece, Jerry. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. All right. David Leeser from Wichita Falls, Texas. Thank you, Lauren. Jay, it's good to see you again. Appreciate it. And thank you also for the falls. And yes, we do control our business park. So thank you very much. And I completely agree with you on that. Um, I, the good news is I have your book. The bad <laughs> news is everybody has taken my book. And I can't read your book because everybody else in my office has, has your book and I, they haven't had a chance, I, given me a chance to read it yet. <laughs> but Buy more books. Okay, <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. A, a, a question, though, is, I mean, we've both been in this business a long time. And yeah. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. If you had wrote, uh, written this book 10 years ago, what was there any major changes that you're doing now that you know, said, boy, I wouldn't have written this? 10 years ago or, or, you know, how has the, this, how has the change affected the book itself? Well, that's a great question. Um, the only component I think that wouldn't have the same content today that it would maybe 10 years ago would be on, um, is your labor force work ready? And so, uh, that's where, you know, there would be more, there would be less discussion then on things like uh, what Jerry asked about on diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. Um, uh, you know, when we wrote this book, we were writing it during COVID. So we actually talked about the, the short-term consequences of, of COVID. I have not lived uh, in my 64 years of age, I have not lived through a pandemic until now. So that was a, a key consideration. And sadly, I, I have been for a long, long time a big proponent of community colleges and technical schools. And I've always called them the unsung heroes of training America's workforce. And 10 years ago, they were still unsung. And they're not unsung today. Uh, and there is much more emphasis on two-year colleges, community colleges, and technical schools than there is the four-year research institutions because the curriculum can get modified much faster, speed to market, uh, things of that nature. So uh, that's where the change is going to be. We're going to do a new edition of this book uh, probably in about a year and a half. And it will be interesting to see what's changed then because, you know, the speed of change is really exponential right now. I mean, it's just it's just amazing what what continues to uh, change in our environment. 
Jade, to that end, one of the things that we've talked about here on Clubhouse is technology and how technology has evolved our industry. Um, what are some of the good and bad that you've seen in terms of technology? Um, great question. Let, let me just say, first of all, in terms of economic development and site location consulting, it's yes, still a, a relationship business. Uh, and that's never going to change. Uh, we're doing a project right now. We're calling it Project Dynamo, which is an, an automotive parts manufacturer. And, you know, um, we're, we're looking at multiple states, multiple communities. And most of, of the uh, contacts that I have are through long-term relationships that have been created through IEDC, the Site Selectors Guild, uh, you know, uh, IAMC going to various uh, um, state association meetings. It's still a relationship. Now, what's changed in, in on the technology? I'm embarrassed to say that when I first got into this business, I thought I was hot stuff when I had a telex machine. I I would bet that some of your listeners may not even know what a telex machine is. And that's how I was communicating with our clients in Asia and Europe, especially in, in Asia. Then in 1984, I got one of the first fax machine on thermograph paper, you know, where you, it was so hard to write on it. But that, that if you recall, it was all that glossy paper. Look where we are today. And uh, even though on the technology side, at the end of the day, on a siding project, I still have to go and kick the dirt in a community. The virtual visits up to a certain point are really condensing um, the time frame and saving significantly on calls. So we just did six virtual visits, which have allowed me to uh, compress a lot of data to where now I'm going to go do six in-person visits, but instead of spending 48 hours at a location or 24 hours at a location, now I can do it in four to six hours at a location. And all of the virtual tools are, you know, anything related to the GIS aggregation um, all of the economic da data, which you can aggregate now from Chamora or from MC or from the U.S. Department of um, uh, Labor, Bureau of Labor Statistics, you know, through Stats America. Uh, anything like that has really, really had a significant impact. Using drone footage now on a virtual visit is standard practice. If a community isn't using drone footage to show a site, then, then it's the equivalent of using a fax machine on thermograph paper. So that gives you a little bit of flavor, uh, Laura. I hope that helps. No, that was great. Lee Mello from Canada. Lee. Hello there. Thank you so much, Laura and everyone. And Jay, loving the conversation and really appreciate uh, having the opportunity to chat about, um, you know, the courage it takes sometimes to do this job in this role. And um, I, I have a couple of questions and one you just partially answered, uh, which was a fantastic analogy about using drones. Um, and I've participated in a couple of the Site Selectors Guild, you know, webinars and events over the past year or two. And um, it seems to me like there are opportunities now in North America when you think about, you know, trade and investment continent wide. And with the new uh, USMCA uh, agreement in place, I would love to hear from you about uh, about your thoughts on opportunities now and how, what's the pace at which perhaps some of this is happening around the strengthening of continental trade around reshoring and nearshoring, you know, supply chain opportunities and de-risking some, you know, some of those North American 
supply chains, <clears throat> pardon me. And, um, and then my last question is uh, around for communities who are starting to get more competitive around investment attraction and trade and strengthening their communities' economies. And you've partially just answered this question, but what are, what are some of the things you would advise them to really focus on as they uh, start to understand how, as you say, economic development is not for amateurs? Um, what would you say to them? And thank you very much. This is Lee and I'm done. <laughs> thank you, Lee. Um, let me see if I can, can remember everything. I, uh, let, me, let me hit on the USMCA first. So uh, it's a key consideration. I think what that did to an extent is level the playing field between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Now, what will happen still is, depending on the the commodity that is being manufacturer manufactured, uh, there are still key considerations associated with cost. So, Mexico is still going to have lower cost in in many manufacturing sectors than say the US. The US may still have lower cost manufacturing. Uh, it still depends on the commodity. So, you know, for example, uh, Canada, lots, lots of provinces in Canada are very strong in the food and beverage sector, both on the manufacturing side and on the uh, growing the particular commodity. So, any economic developer should focus on their target market strategy, the cost associated with it, you know, just not say, hey, we're good at this without you able to quantify why you're good at it. What's your value proposition? What makes you distinct and unique? And you should do that on any of your target markets that uh, you're, you're focused on. Uh, but then let's talk about as it relates to uh, nearshoring or onshoring. So initially, I was a pretty strong advocate of the potential uh, significant outmigration of Chinese-related businesses, primarily uh, those that are in the um, medical device, medical equipment, pharma sectors. You know, because initially during the pandemic, everyone was saying we got to do what we can to protect the supply chain. I have matured a bit about that discussion now to where uh, what you're mostly going to see is an Asia plus one, maybe an Asia plus two strategy. They might leave China, but if they are leaving China, they're still going to be in Asia. So they could be in Vietnam. They could be in, in uh, Burma, could be any place, uh, certain parts of Indonesia, where it's still a low-cost operating environment. If um, they're looking at a North American operation, if it's cost-sensitive for medical device, medical manufacturing, uh, medical equipment, they could very well be in Mexico, not, um, the, not Canada, not the U.S., if cost is a key consideration, typically it is, okay? So that's a concern. That's a concern. On your other uh, question, what can um, communities do? I mean, I mean it's, still, it's still the easily, easily blocking and tackling. You've got to build your product. You've got to be able to communicate your brand, tell the world about your value proposition. You've got to have the talent. Another uh, phrase that we use, talent is the new currency. It really is. And so it's all about the talent. We are living in a aging population. Um, the people aren't having babies like they used to have. And so uh, you're still going to see more automation uh, on everything from fast food to manufacturing. But you still have to have the talent. Anything that you can do to demonstrate what you're doing to build the talent pipeline uh, allows you to uh, differentiate yourself to your competition. 
Hope that helps, Lee. Super. Thank you. <laughs> well yeah first thank you uh thanks a lot jay it's uh it's just lovely uh hearing from you uh i'm coming from yeah, you, you have four decades of experience. I only have a few months of experience in, in this domain. So there's a lot to learn from me. Um, oh. there, yeah. And uh, there was a lot of, uh, you mean, very interesting topics that were, that were uh, expressed in this convo. Um, so all I can say is thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much for your kind comments. And I hope you enjoy the book. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan. Yeah, well, of course, we're always looking for more people to join us on the stage. But um, Jay, you know, we talked a little bit, we touched on this ever so slightly, um, talent. Talent is becoming more and more important. You and I have talked about how talent is the new currency. Are you seeing some best practices in your searches that as economic development professionals, we should be aware of? Yeah, that's that's a great question because I'm always keeping my eyes uh, open for that type of thing. And, you know, whenever we work in a community that has a population loss, it's a red flag uh, for us. So then we ask, well, what are you doing to build the talent pipeline? Because, you know, population gains are are one of two ways. People are either being born into your community or they're moving into your community. Right. So that that's it. So what are we seeing on, on the talent pipeline? Well, obviously, some of the stuff that's been out there for a while, such as uh, career pathways, career uh, academies, uh, technical high schools, and anything like that where a child may start to learn a vocation as early as middle school. Um, really opens the eyes of the corporate client uh, to, to build that talent pipeline. And then using the, the German apprenticeship model uh, where you're, you're seeing uh, companies that are hiring these um, high school or college age students uh, and they're basically, you know, unless they, they fail at their apprenticeship, they're guaranteed a job and a, usually a pretty darn good paying job upon their completion of their education uh, is, is a good model. Um, places like Greensboro, North Carolina have done that very effectively. I believe the state of Kentucky is doing that now statewide, pretty proactively, pretty aggressively on the apprenticeship model that's different than an internship you know so that it again it's the apprenticeship it, it, and it's the what the old german model started primarily in the automotive sector so uh you know and then and then community colleges laura that um are focusing on occupational education based on the clusters of that particular community. That is a key consideration too. So for example, if you live in a community where uh, you, you may have a company that's involved in the aerospace aviation cluster, like an Airbus or a Boeing, and then you have the community colleges that are focused on significant 
occupational training coming out of that, um, that helps build the talent pipeline. Very helpful. Thank you so much, Jay. Um, Chris Pengra from West Jordan, Utah. Chris. Thank you. Um, and I'm not sure how strong my connection is. So can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, Jay, it's nice to, uh, to see you and hear from you. I took one of your courses through, uh, University of Oklahoma and successfully went through my CFD, uh, program and, uh, nice to, to see you again. I, I have a question regarding, um, what bright spots you see as far as opportunities to uh, to target companies specifically within the energy economy or uh, companies that represent national security risks for us that are that are currently uh, offshore. And so what I mean by that, Jay, is I was having a conversation briefly with a member of Utah's federal delegation and uh, simply said to him, what types of businesses could we bring in to Utah that would be a benefit either to national security um, and, or, or other concerns that, uh, that he had as a nation, things that he would like to see come back to, to the states? He mentioned um, specifically that the, in the energy economy, uh, China is eating our lunch, both in research and development and manufacturing of, of new technologies. Um, now, we didn't get a chance to to uh, go through and have a, a deeper conversation, which hopefully we'll be able to. But is there any insight that you can share with us that uh, about what types of businesses or technologies that might encompass? Well, <clears throat> your congressional rep is right. China's eating our lunch in a lot of different industry sectors because, you know, remember, it's still the Communist Party. And they're able to um, pick the winners and losers in certain technology and invest, you know, accordingly. So most of most of any kind of spending is um, primarily, you know, through that that is going to be state, which means government uh, sponsored, government supported. So that gives any kind of growth sector a leg up. Let's talk about national security for a second. Then I'll come back to clean tech. Uh, on anything that is secure, I mean, look how look how we're just getting hammered on uh, on uh, uh, issues related to uh, breaking into our secure connections. Like when we had our our gas shortage in the east not long ago from Colonial Pipeline. You know, I I I live in Atlanta, so I suffered that where I had to wait multiple times for 90 minutes and less because, you know, some hacker shut down uh, a computer software program. What we're seeing on the technology side relating to national security is um, those kinds of companies are clustering in large urban environments like a, in Atlanta, um, a Chicago, uh, I'm not so, so sure about Chicago right now because public safety is a key consideration in the siting process and all urban locations are having challenges with that right now. But I look at companies like Microsoft and they've done significant um, real estate plays in major cities like Atlanta near Georgia Tech. So that should tell you something. What I What I typically find is that any kind of security-related company is partnering nearby a major federal government security location? So, like in Augusta, Georgia, you have a huge you have the Army um, uh, Cybersecurity Command at Fort Gordon, and so as a result, and, and so the NSA and the Army have a facility on Fort Gordon. As a result of that, you have in the city of Augusta, a large cluster of security related firms. Same thing in San Antonio, same thing in the Fort Meade area of DC where uh, the NSA has. So follow that cluster. On clean tech, 
it's going to be anywhere. And it, you know, just depends on where you see the technology related to that company. So that's everything from additives into carbon fuels. And there is war on carbon. So there is additives in those fuels to uh, solar, uh, anything of, of, of that nature. Um, all of that is a fast evolution. I don't think anyone has their finger on it correctly or completely because the, the speed of change is so significant. I'm learning about it every day. Uh, and I try to go to different sources. I use Goldman Sachs a lot uh, to learn uh, from them on these different industry sectors because they've done very strong methodical research. I would encourage you to try to find uh, a source like that to help you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Such a great question. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, Harumi from California. Harumi, do you have a question? Yay. Oh, wow. Hey, Thank you. Thank you so much. But Dan, uh, actually, I bought one on Amazon. So, <laughs> uh, so we'll Venmo you for the cost of it. <laughs> well, greetings from California. I'm currently working for the city of Oakley in the Bay Area. Um, I recently had an opportunity to meet with a Japanese government agency, and I wanted to share a quick story behind it. Um, while we were having this conversation about size selections and so on, then we ended up uh, with this huge idea of like sister city concept, developing exclusive you know uh, partnership program with a local city in Japan, and. Um, I just wondered, since I'm so foreign to this like idea of sisterhood city program, I wonder if um, you you could share uh, your opinion, Jay. Um, I, I know this is kind of derailed from the topic, but I uh, wanted to know your opinions around that. Oh, thank you. Harumi, uh, hachimamashite, ganadesu. Oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. So I used to spend a lot of time in Japan and... Uh, Chiba Prefecture and specifically the city of Goy. Um, uh, well, it's now called Ichihara, but before the war, it was called uh, Goy. And it was through the Sister Cities program. So obviously, I have a strong affinity and uh, personal affection for Sister City programs. I think that they can create a strong bond between communities and companies. Uh, again, it's all about relationships, and that's what sister cities do. Um, as long as you're able to include businesses as part of that dialogue. So typically, you know, what you'll find on a sister city relationship, especially with U.S. participation, is you'll have the city council and or mayor of a community, and then you'll have some people Unfortunately, too many retirees who are involved in um, just trying to stay engaged in something. And so it's not necessarily the right people. You've got to get the right people engaged. So uh, educators, people involved in culture, people involved in the arts, but don't forget business people. Okay. Wakata Maska. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you so much, yes, Jay. Sir. Super impressive. Okay. My pleasure. Well, I'd love to go to our stage and see if they have questions before I ask maybe one last one. Uh, Jerry, David Lee, Ryan, Harumi, any other questions you'd like to ask? David? Yeah, real quick. Uh, Jay, this has been great. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question you probably get asked a million times. I mean, you know, Laura, you, you obviously, I mean, we're always, always hitting on you to talk to you and all that stuff. We do it through phone calls and emails and all that stuff. And we're trying to walk that fine line of staying in touch with you, but without being annoying. 
Yeah. So how do we walk that fine line with you in terms of whether we use social media or phone calls or, I mean, obviously we see you as site selection guild, but I mean, that's that fine line we always have to walk with, with somebody like yourself. Well, uh, David, I would say um, right now, focus on social media uh, as best you can. You're real good at it because uh, I see your stuff on LinkedIn, on Twitter um, all the time. So, so do that, you know, because any location advisor may not have the time during the day for a phone call. I'm going to come back on that on a second. But at, at some point, whether they're eating lunch whether they're winding down, whether they're waiting for an appointment, they're looking at social media because everyone's addicted to their phones, okay? So use that opportunity. Listen, here's the deal right now. I've never seen it like this before in 41 years. Um, we're the busiest we've ever been. All of my colleagues are the busiest they've ever been. I had a uh, friend of mine who's a uh, well-known in the construction industry who said, if you're not busy, you're not any good. And he's right. Um, and so, you know, right now we, our bandwidth has is severely, severely um, constrained. I've had to turn, I, this breaks my heart um, because I'm a, I'm a business owner. I had to turn away business a couple of weeks ago because we didn't have the capacity to take it on. And I'm all about quality control. I'm all, uh, you know, I'm a big Deming disciple who was the father of the total quality management effort. Uh, and I had to, I didn't want to do anything to harm our quality reputation. Six months from now, I'm going to wish I wouldn't have turned that business down. My point being, David, Doing Zoom calls, which were real popular on the front end of the pandemic, um, uh, I, I'm having, I just don't take them now. I mean, because of the bandwidth. And I did this for Laura. Laura wanted me to do this, I think, in early June, around the time frame of National Economic Development Week. And unfortunately, I had to turn her down because of our bandwidth issues. And so here we are 30 days later. But um, and I'm thrilled I was able to do it. Um, so just be cognizant. Don't get your feelings hurt if you get turned down on taking phone calls, trying to set up Zoom. Play that social media thing big and and continue to send emails of anything relevant uh, that, again, differentiates you Um I check my spam filter every day. Sadly, any everything from constant contact is going into my spam filter. We are on Microsoft Exchange. I've done everything I can to not get those to go into the spam filter, but be cognizant of that too, uh, especially if you use Microsoft Exchange. A lot of my brethren in the guild do because of the internet service providers we, we have. I use GoDaddy and my team uses GoDaddy. Um, so just think about all those little nuances. I hope that helps, David. Yeah, thanks, I appreciate it. Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much, Jay, for your continued support. And even though it took us a month to get you here, I'm thrilled you were able to join us and have such a great conversation. Um, and hopefully, we'll, you'll have some people who will buy your book as well. Um, yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, thanks yeah. so much, Jay. And thanks to all of our audience for continuing to support the ActDev Network and our Clubhouse chats. Um, if you want to hear this again, we do turn these into podcasts. So watch for that on the ActDev Network LinkedIn page coming soon. Um, we have great topics coming up in July. And on as a friendly reminder, July 2nd, we will not be having a clubhouse. Um, we normally do a Friday, but we decided not to do a Friday this time because of the holiday weekend, both in Canada and the US. So um, please enjoy the long holiday weekend. We'll be back on Wednesday, July 7th to talk about talent. 
And we have um, Jake joining us from Salt Lake City, where Utah has done some really impressive talent programs. And so he's going to come in and talk about some of the, the best practices from Utah. So thank you again, everyone, for your support. We look forward to seeing you after the holiday weekend, the 7th at noon here on Clubhouse. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a lot of fun. Laura, I really appreciate it. Dan, great to meet you. I'll see you all later. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone.